Let us rejoice and be glad. Today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. Therefore, let us remind and encourage one another. Christ is risen. Let us pray. We do give you praise and thanks, Lord God of heaven and earth, that you have given us your Son, who is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, the one who enables us to have communion with the, you, the triune God. Help us now to rejoice in him, to learn of him, and so be encouraged by the truth and the life that he gives us. Hear our prayers and uphold us for Jesus' sake. Amen. So today, we will be studying our gospel reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let us hear it again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you also may be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him. And have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, That I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. These are powerful words that come at an interesting time in the Scriptures. Here Jesus has been with his disciples for three years, and he has come into the city, and now they are alone and he knows that he has just hours yet with his disciples and this passage is among the words that he shares i can tell you as a father of young adults some married some not when you spend your life teaching them and training them and telling them of the lord the lord and the great joys of the forgiveness of sins And you teach them all kinds of things like life safety, whether it's driving a car or for some in boats or merely walking down the street and having a sense of awareness. And you think about the safety of the stove 
And you think about all the things you've taught them, some very practical, some elaborate, some just for joy. And when you as a parent recognize that you have just a few hours left before you leave them somewhere, before you go and you leave them, you reflect. For us, as mere men, as mere mortals, we think, Lord, have mercy. All the gaps, all the things I didn't say, all those other things, right? But we don't trust in ourselves, but we want to share. What are the pertinent things that I need to tell them or I want to remind them of God, of their place in the church, of what God has called them to do in the world? And here, Jesus, in a very similar way, knows he has just a few hours. So you think about the importance of the words. Not that any of his words are more important than the others, but you think about what he's done. He spent these three years going along with them, teaching them, training them, helping them to understand. And yet we know that they don't really understand what's happening. And Jesus has flat out in certain places told them what he has come for, what he is doing where he is going to die and that he will not remain dead. And they don't understand it at all. And our passage today begins with, do not let your heart be troubled. Now this is not a general admonition or comfort for all people in all times. It is that, but we need to certainly look at what this means in this passage so that we can draw comfort from it. But we need to not lose sight that the fact that the triune God, our God, has been and continues to be the God who works in real time and history. Jesus' words, do not let your heart be troubled, are being spoken at a very, very real moment where the disciples are beginning to feel like something dreadful is coming. They are beginning to sense that their vision of deliverance, the way they had it figured out, the way they thought it was going to happen, that's not going to be the way it's going to come down. Jesus has certainly been telling the disciples for some time about his impending death, but they have not understood Jesus. Imagine the emotional roller coaster that the disciples have been on for this prior week. They've been with Lazarus, the resurrected friend of Jesus. They've seen the crowds pressing in at Bethany to see Jesus in Lazarus in John 11. Then there's the high, can you imagine, the emotional high of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So we see here that, they, that, that things are astir, things are a flurry. Jesus has raised the man from the dead. And when he's come back to come to Jerusalem, he stops in Bethany and he sees Lazarus and the people are clamoring. And you're like, wow, this is something else. And then it says the next day they go in to Jerusalem. And when they go there, the crowds come out and they are just exploding with praise to God 
and acknowledging of Jesus in John 12. The crowds are declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the, of the Lord, the King of Israel. They see and hear Jesus challenge and declare woes to the leaders of Israel. Can you imagine? Would that give you a sense of, of emboldenedness? You see Jesus come in and ride in like a king, and then he goes to the temple, he cleanses it, and he calls out the wicked leaders of the day, and you're like, yeah, we're on the precipice of taking this thing. And then they hear Jesus speak of the destruction of the temple in Matthew 23 and 24. They heard Jesus himself lamenting over the people in Jerusalem and their rejection of God by killing the prophets. In Matthew 23. Now in the upper room, they see and they hear strange and perhaps disturbing things. First of all, as they come into the room, Jesus acts as a servant and washes their feet. This is odd, the rabbi serving them, washing their feet. And remember, what is the curse of sin? That dust of the earth. And Jesus is washing it off. Then they see and hear Jesus who was troubled concerning Judas the betrayer in John 13, 21. Jesus speaks of leaving the disciples in John 13 and that they can't go with him. So you've gone for this big high to this changing of things and it it's all seems out of order and what's happening and and what do you mean I can't go with you? I thought, I thought I was your disciple. And then Jesus even predicts Peter's denial, not just one time, but three times in John 13, 36. We all can imagine that in the middle of these circumstances, Jesus' words, do not let your heart be troubled, are more than timely but also bring comfort to the disciples in these uncertain circumstances. So what words does Jesus use to bring comfort? How does Jesus reassure the disciples? Jesus speaks to the fact that God purposed from the beginning of creation to build his dwelling place with us, a place to worship him, and abide in communion with him and his people. The goal is to dwell with you, not just as an individual, but together as God's people, together forever. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, these verses have often been used to encourage people of the reward they will receive 
at the final resurrection where God does reward his people in eternity. And we can see this in 2 Timothy 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 John chapter 1, and certainly in Revelation 22. But Jesus here in this passage is speaking not that everyone will receive a big house in heaven for all eternity. You can imagine, you know, we're going to get this big house, have a mansion, have all the other saints over, have a big party. No, that's not what he's saying. What is he doing? Jesus, rather, is in fact going to be building his father's house. The word mansion here is really unfortunate in its translation. The Greek word, mane, means dwelling place or place to abide. Remember, what Jesus said, it says a little bit further along in verse 23, where he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make him our home or dwelling place, abiding place with him. The root word for this dwelling place is abiding. In John six fifty six, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Right in our passage, we see a little bit farther along, the Father is abiding in Jesus. And we see in verse 17, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells, that is, abides with you and he'll be in you. So what is Jesus going away to prepare? Jesus, in acknowledging the close of the old covenant and the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple through his death, resurrection, and ascension is laying the foundation for the new temple. When Jesus speaks of his father's house in the Gospels, there's only one other, there's only one other place in the Gospels where Jesus says this. And this is a reference in John chapter 2. When he says, my father's house, he is speaking of the temple. The prophet Isaiah, when speaking of the judgment of Jerusalem and those who love death by rejecting God, speaks in Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Jesus must go through his death burial, resurrection, and ascension and becomes the cornerstone of the new temple. We are reminded in our epistle reading today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, precious. You also, now he's speaking to you and I, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's providential plan from the beginning was for his people to be his temple, the place because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, where we, God's people, would gather together and become the place where he, the triune God, would dwell and abide with us both now and for all eternity. This understanding 
of being together in the temple, God speaks directly to the eternal and essential nature of the church and our worship together as his people. Being together in real time and space cannot be replaced by technology. At best, technology is a shadow of reality. This is why, unless God is providentially hindered, you must be worshiping with God's people on the Lord's Day. And what does it mean to be providentially hindered? And of course, this means by God himself, perhaps you're prevented by sickness or natural disasters. Although I would encourage you, if we have a hurricane, I know that we must take care of things. But at some point in that day, let us stop together and worship God if we can. This can also include life-sustaining work like doctors and nurses, first responders, and on-duty military service. But we need to remember that when you are on vacation, you need to be with God's people where you are. If you are serving somewhere when worship is going on at your local congregation, and it's made available to you. Perhaps you're in the military and you're on deployment and the service comes up. Go and be with God's people and worship Him there. And certainly, if you have things coming up, obstacles perhaps, get with your pastor, get with your elders. Find out and say, is this being providentially hindered or is this my will that I need a break? Why do any of us ever need a break from the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being indwelled together with the Father through the work of Christ. We can be filled with immense gratitude for Jesus' promise to be reconciled to us and for Him to bring the Father and for God to dwell with us now and for all eternity. Now it's really important in all of this that we don't lose sight, that we do not deny Jesus' atoning substitutionary death and resurrection. If anyone looks to find any other way or truth or life other than Jesus, this person rejects the one true God. And of course, Jesus, in his conversation with Thomas, says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not come by accident. His death was always part of God's plan for redemption. We see in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. He came. This was his purpose to deliver us, to be brought up and tortured and put on the cross and be our substitute for our sin. We see in John 12, picking up again at verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And he said, this he said, signifying what death he would die. So again, Christ knew his purpose, and he knew that he would be dying for our sins. This was God's plan from the beginning. We also see this in Hebrews 2 and John 3, Philippians 2 and Psalm 2. I bring this up because there are some, even among those who profess to be Christians, 
They declare that Christianity must do away with the barbarous torture of Jesus' trial. That, that, that we must do away with the tearing out of Jesus' beard. We must do away with the spitting and beating of Jesus. And there should definitely be no talk of Jesus' back being shredded with the whip. And we cannot acknowledge the bloody, suffocating death on the cross. They cry. We, mankind, have evolved beyond Jesus' suffering and death. This is grievous. And I'm not making this up. There are people gathering in church buildings today who think and are even proclaiming from the pulpits that we're better than that. We need to do away with Christ's death and all that violence. They deny the work of Christ. Jesus' suffering and death was for your sins and mine. He took the punishment that we deserved. We must stand firmly that there is no other way to God the Father except by Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. All truth comes from He who formed and established all of creation. Any life outside of Jesus Christ leads to death. There is no other way. Only Jesus. You know, sinful people are always looking to avoid submitting to King Jesus. The reformer John Calvin reminds us that the world attempts to go to God, as he likes to say, by indirect and crooked paths. And of course, we can look through the scriptures and see in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Right there, what's happening? They're trying to go. Cain is trying to go to God by his own means. We see in Babel in Genesis 11, where they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, our works, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Instead of obeying God, the people of Babel resisted, built their own mountain to reach God, and ignored the direction that God gave. What, what did they say? They didn't want to be the uh, scattered over the face of the earth. God told them to go out and take dominion of the whole earth. And instead, they built their own way to reach to God, to be their own God, making and fashioning their own way. In last week's gospel reading, Jesus tells us that some will climb over another way into the sheepfold of God's people. Jesus then clearly and firmly states in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that people will suppress the truth by their actions. In verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. 
People will attempt to exchange the truth into a lie. What lie is this? That they would look and fashion their own idols of their own making in their own image and worship and serve themselves and find or attempt to find or make their own way to God. And because of this, we see in, in Romans 1, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And you know what we do as the church? All too often, we hear that and we go, yeah, those wicked people out there. But remember, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church. So I need everyone, children, listen up. Listen to how we are not to be. Everyone else in the room, listen carefully. He says, in being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Finally, that passage in Romans 1 says, who, so th this, this is an indictment. And it says that those who knowing the righteous judgment of God, the wicked, they're darkened. They don't know the righteous judgment of God. It says, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Do not be deceived. We too can attempt to fashion our own ways to God. And we become like those in verse 32 who know the righteous judgment of God and the death that it brings. And yet we do these things and even approve of others who practice them as well. We need to repent of these sins. We need to confess these sins. And do not grant approval of others who live in the way described here in Romans 1. If you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive you. There is no other way. None of us can get to God on our, no, our own. We cannot get to God by our good works. You know, a lot of times we're really, we're, our, 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 the thing that trips us up is this. We know that we're saved by grace. And then once we're Christians, we're, we're you know, God does call us to do righteous things, to do good. We're now set free from the bondage of sin. But then we somehow think after that, that that our salvation is dependent on, well, did my good outweigh my bad today? No, it is simply by the grace of God. Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appear, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of the regeneration of the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly. How did he do this? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In John 14, 
In verse 7 it says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And of course, Philip goes on and says this, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the sake of the work themselves. Jesus here in these verses makes it very clear that he and the Father are one. They abide and dwell in one another. The words that Jesus speaks are authoritative because they dwell, that is, the Father and the Son, together. Jesus says, believe these words. Trust me. And if not, you've seen the works that I do. And they all know there's been a debate throughout the Gospels, right? Those that really hate God say, he's of the devil. And those that are earnestly seeking him are looking for him say, but how can a person do these things if he's against God? And remember, Most of these miracles that Jesus does, most of the healings that he does, he is not only performing a healing of the physical body, but these were all things that were barriers that prevented people from going to the temple. Jesus' works were removing those things, sin included, but also the physical manifestations of things that kept you from going and being in the temple. And so he says, believe these words or believe the works that validate who he is. Jesus goes on and tells us that greater works are done or are going to be done by the church for Jesus' sake and for the Father's glory. And I think this is really hard. We, we try to say, wait a minute. What's going on here? How can this possibly be true? Well, if Jesus said it, is it true? He says this in verse 12 of our passage, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. (coughs) And the greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. And you know how we try to get out of this? We try to look at it and say, okay, well, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do. Well, well, you know, my motives are bad. That's the problem. Right? So we don't want to take petitions before God. But, when, you know, so when we come together here as the body of Christ, what do we do? We come up and we bring our prayers of petitions to God. And we are asking for the sake of Jesus that God do these things. That God builds up the families. That God blesses the other churches in this community and around the world. That God move in this church. That God bless the evangelistic and and mercy works of people in this congregation into the community. All of these things, we come and ask God to do these things. Do you think that God wants to see 
the kingdom of God grow and expand, to see people reach for the gospel, to see healthy churches in this community and around the world? Can we do this? No. But we come before him as the people of God, as the living stones of the temple, and we come together and we pray and we ask God to do these things. We need to recognize that when we are the new temple of the living God built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we become the springs of living waters that bring life. The prophet Ezekiel in his vision of the temple in chapter 47 says this, then he, that is the man of God that was bringing Ezekiel there, he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. And it began to flow, and it began to get deeper and deeper. It says at first that the water came up to his ankles, and then came up to my knees, and then was waist high. And then it says this, And it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was so deep, the water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were many trees on one side and the other. And then he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, the waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gede to En Egelem. And they, excuse me, it says they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds of fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. Who are the fishermen? We are the fishermen. When the people of God come together and worship, the rivers of life flow from the temple out to the world. When you are commissioned, you are part of that flowing and you become trees and outposts of God's temple and city throughout the world. And you are going to go out and be fishers of men. And you know, if you think, well, man, there's some pretty messed up areas. It says this, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. Those things that, that, that are not connected to the rivers of life, they're not going to be healed. But then it says, along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food, and their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be food, and their leaves for medicine. And we hear those very words in the book of Revelation, right? Where the world is brought together, heaven and earth come together, and the new temple, God's people, is erected, and the rivers of life flow out from the throne of God. And there are trees, it says, along the banks, whose leaves, and it uses this very same, bearing fruit all the time, every month. 
But the leaves, here it says medicine, there it says for the healing of the nations. We need to make to understand that all the death that this river of life comes to will be healed. And these waters will become teeming with many fish to be brought in. And just like Revelation 20, we become those trees of life for the healing of the nations. God will in, will in fact use us to do greater things as the people of God, as the temple of living stones from which the waters of life flow out and bring healing and life to all nations. When we come together as God's temple, confess our sins, be transformed by the word, make intercession for the world, and come to God's table of peace, the gates of hell shake because God is glorified and we become the temple city on a hill and the nations are healed and become part of the Father's eternal house, the place where the living triune God abides and dwells with us. You know, sometimes we look around and we just cannot see the good in the troubling circumstances, just like the disciples on that day. They were seeing all this trouble, and certainly after Jesus is arrested and a few are kind of hanging around and watching things, they can see no good coming out of this. And of course, we know that story, and we rejoice in Christ's death and then resurrection and ascension and his redemption that he has brought to us. But we say, you know, that was then. How does that work now? You know, in our passage today, and of course, if, I'm going to remind you, if you don't recognize this, our, our lectionary readings are all connected. And you might say, I'm not sure how that passage in Acts today had anything to do with this. But you know, when we look at that, there's just one little line in there that's kind of just a passing detail. Here, the gospel's been preached, and the haters of God are so incensed they grab up Stephen, and they drag him out. And you can imagine the other Christians around trying to figure out what to do. Do I intervene? Do I get drug off with him? What's going to happen? How can, this, how can this servant of God, this deacon who's preaching the word, how, how, how can they, you know, what good's going to come out of this? You can imagine if they were hanging back and watching those stones being flung. Where's God glorified in this? How's the church moving forward in this? And you know what? We look around us right now. We look at the, the, the upheavals going on in the world, the persecution of the church at large. And we even look in our own nation, in our own areas, and we see these places and we see these difficulties. We go, Where, where's the good here? Where's the good here? But there's one little line in that Acts chapter 7. And it says this, that there was a witness that all those witnesses, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. At the stoning of Stephen, there stood the future apostle Paul. The death of one saint is part of the blessings to all the saints. When you look around, no matter, no matter the instability or the troubling things or even the scary things that we see in the world around us, we too can cling to Jesus' words 
of comfort and strength. Do not be troubled. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the great victory that Jesus has wrought. And we praise that you, that you have seated him at your right hand. You have highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, Father, help us to be a people to do this very thing each and every day, fearing you and living in joy and gladness. We ask all these things for the sake of your Son, Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.